welcome to another episode of Khaki Malarkey. So we have a bit of a legend here with us today. Um, we are talking to the lovely Alison Weir about her book, Queens of the Crusade. How's your lockdown been? <laughs> oh, well, well, it's been um, um, very, very busy in terms of writing because no events or just a few virtual events recently, but um, I've had time to write, so I'm way ahead. Oh, lovely. So what are you writing at the moment? I'm doing two books. I'm doing Fiction in the Morning, a novel that hasn't been announced yet because I've finished uh, six novels and six Tudor Queens on Henry VIII's Wives. Yes. And I've got a new contract for four more novels. I'm, I'm not allowed to say what they are yet. <laughs> and wow, on the afternoons, I'm, I'm doing a quartet of history books on England's medieval queens, and I'm on number three. So I'm meant to deliver at the end of December, but I think I might at the end of this month, the rate I'm going. <laughs> That's how far ahead I am. But once lockdown eases, I'm, I've got a lot, I'm going to be really busy. Get back into the real world, yeah. I'm absolutely yeah. dying to go to a conference. Oh, won't it be wonderful? <laughs> oh, it'll be so good. Can't wait. Go out to restaurants and theatres. Oh, God, I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, my parents are definitely missing the theatre. Um, I think that's Oh, God, it's terrible. The biggest just, thing about it's lockdown, yeah. It's the social life. It's all the events. It's engaging with readers, it, you know, and it, it's lovely yeah. to be able to do something like this. Thank God for Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. Especially when you've got the videos on, you can actually see people's faces. I think in I a discipline like ours, in history, it's so... It's so social. You rely on networking a lot, and it's. it's I know. Trouble is, really can't get when you miss out. On that. So my hair looks terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't! I've got my hair appointment booked for a few weeks' time. I'm absolutely buzzing. I can't wait. <laughs> I know. I can't wait. I. <laughs> no, it needs to be a lot shorter. <laughs> right. So, Alison, we ask all of our guests this: if you can summarise your book in thirty seconds. Okay, going from now. Go. <laughs> It's a romp through over a century, five, five English queens, and we've got treason and murder and um, luxury and intrigue and that. Is that it? <laughs> that was the speediest summary ever. I love that. You've given us a little teaser there. I've got a blur. <laughs> <laughs> no, you tell amazing. Us. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure how the time was going. <laughs> I think you came in at about nine seconds there, so. What? You want more? <laughs> No, it's good. If I mean, if we were to keep a leaderboard of all of it, we definitely see you'd see a massive divide between the two types of people in this challenge. There's people that strive to fill the entire thirty seconds, and people that are like, "No, I'm getting yeah, a ten point. second hit." Oh God, I like talking about Straight my work. <laughs> well, when you've got so much of it, where do you start, honestly? Gosh, I know, I know. I keep looking. I pinch myself. I'm still pinching myself. I actually got into print, and it's now th nearly thirty-two books later. I can't believe you published 32 books like that's that's I've published 30 but I've got two, 30, I'm finished two in the works yeah so I want to talk about Eleanor of Aquitaine yeah because she's fascinating um yes. she's been through some incredible historical events but how would you if we're going to talk about the, the kind of military crusades context here how would you summarize Eleanor of Aquitaine's part in the crusades if you could narrow that Disaster. down to any <laughs> roles. Oh, disaster. Disaster. I was say if you could narrow it down to a phrase or something, just one word, disaster. No, I mean, disaster. I mean, she, uh, she, she, she was really enthusiastic about going on the crusade. And yeah. Of course, it was organised by St Bernard of Clairvaux, who was quite an ascetic. And he and he looked at very askance at Eleanor. He didn't like her or all the clothes she wore. He thought she was too alluring and, uh, you know, and her morals were dubious. And uh, so he wasn't very happy. And there's this, when the crusade was preached by St. Bernard, and there was a great concourse of, of nobles with, uh, in front of the king and queen at Vézelay in Burgundy, um, 
there is a legend which may have its basis in fact that Eleanor and her ladies dressed up as Amazons and galloped across the plain. Well, that was quite a, a spectacular start if it happened, but we have got corroborative evidence on it. But when it came to going through Turkey, what's now Turkey, and, 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 the, and the Middle East, um, Eleanor really blotted her copybook because um, in Turkey, she, her, her advance guard went ahead with the baggage train and it was her lords, her, her, her Poitavin vassals who were leading that and they were ambushed by the Turks and slaughtered. Now, Eleanor wasn't responsible, but she was blamed for it because they were her lords. And then when they got to Antioch and when her uncle was Prince of Antioch, uh, he, wanted, he wanted King Louis, her husband, to help him uh, strengthen his own borders rather than go on the crusade. And Louis was determined to get to Jerusalem. And Eleanor took her uncle's part. And it was said, that there was something going on between her and her uncle, which caused such a scandal that it was being talked about for decades afterwards. And in the end, uh, her husband, Louis, uh, had her literally bundled up and, and taken away from Antioch. And then she gets quiet after that. So she didn't play the most distinguished part in the crusade. When you say she was blamed for everything, do you think that's because she was an easy Dodging. target being a woman? <laughs> I think or that, was that an just kind of yes. okay. I yeah. mean, she actually she really she really uh, you know you know gave him the fodder for the complaints by her behaviour in Antioch. She said because she refused to leave. She said that if Louis didn't comply with what her uncle wanted, she'd stay in Antioch. And he Louis knew that if she stayed, her forces would stay with her, and his his um, crusade was doomed to failure. Mm. So you know she she rather she almost scuppered it. And uh, the marriage was literally on the rocks when they were they were on, when they were on their way home. They weren't speaking. They stopped off in Rome, and the Pope, um, both of them, Eleanor pressed for an almond, and the Pope said, "No way," you know. And he he actually prepared a, a bedroom for them with the sumptuous hangings and everything, and said, "Make good use of it, effectively." <laughs> Get your oh marriage God. back on track. <laughs> Poor marriage. The garment. Pope intervening <laughs> in your relationship. Incredible. It's hard, hard to believe nowadays, isn't it? Yes. So I think oh, she definitely. Was, I do think there's an element of misogyny in the chronicler's mm. view of her because women were always suspect, and women who sort of mm. got above themselves and wielded power are even more suspect. Women that had an army, definitely more suspect. Absolutely, <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's only in her old age that Eleanor came into her own. Okay, how do you mean came into her own? Well, when she was, I mean, I mean, she had a temper. She married Henry II of England. She, she, she procured a divorce from Louis in the end and married yeah. Henry II of England, with whom she already seemed to have had an affair when he visited Paris. Uh, she was 30 and he was 19. And this was a, this was a union of policy because she was the greatest heiress in Europe. Yeah. And it Henry vast lands. It created the Angevin Empire or the Plantagenet wow. Empire. And also it was a marriage based on lust. Clearly, that's clear from the chroniclers. And uh, she, I mean, this is a story you can't make up. So, I mean, this this marriage sort of, you know, was probably too hot not to cool down. And he had... <laughs> and, uh, and this Fantastic. Was Just over 20 years later, he wouldn't devolve power to the son she'd borne him. And uh, she um, joined them in a rebellion against him. And she raised troops and she was going to um, escape from Aquitaine to... Um, her, pre, her former husband Louis, she was going to Paris to enlist help 
and this was treason of the first order. Uh, but what the she was she was caught on the way. And what the chroniclers were scandalised by was the fact that she was wearing women's clothes, uh, men's clothes. More were more scandalised by that than the fact she committed treason was rising against her husband. And it was the worst crisis oh of one God. of the two bad crises of Henry's reign. The other one was Thomas Becket's murder. So Henry kept Eleanor under house arrest or a prisoner for the last 16 years of his reign. And when at 65, her son, her beloved son, Richard the Lionheart became king, she emerged from prison and literally came into her own because he wanted to fight the third crusade. And he left her in overall charge in England. And she brought in a series of really wise measures, not just uh, you know, while he was away, but also on his accession to drum up support for him because he wasn't well known in England. He was literally the, um, the Duke of Aquitaine. Amazing. So he left mum in charge and then had a whole reputation when he got back. And when he got, when he was captured and became the prisoner of the emperor, was held in captivity for a massive ransom. Guess what? It was mum who got that ransom raised. <laughs> Mums and their sons, yeah. eh? <laughs> That just proves no matter how old you are, your mum is always there. I think it's incredible. 16 years in what captive, cap basically just shot yeah, away. She's cut from she is and she's taking over England. Oh, exactly. I mean, but she 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 gained gained in wisdom by then. The measures she took benefited um, poorer people, benefited the country at large. And uh, she that's on which it's these years on in regard to her deeds on which her towering reputation rests. A lot of the scandal about her was forgotten. It was revived in the next century after her death. But, uh, but, but, you know, she, she, she emerged as a wise and prudent ruler. She sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> I have great admiration yeah. for her. Because, I mean, we, we're looking, I mean, we, we've got a, a gap of eight centuries. Um, and I, when, I, when I proposed this biography, my editor said, you can't write a biography of a woman who's 800 years dead. There just aren't the sources. Well, there aren't as many sources. <laughs> six wives of Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, for example. Yeah. But what we've got is very good, very, a very good chronicles. And also Eleanor's letters in which, one of which to the Pope, and she was really furious because he wouldn't help but uh, assist Richard out of captivity. She signed herself Eleanor by the wrath of God, Queen of England. <laughs> Fantastic. I'd love to sign an email off like that. I know. Can you imagine? I know. <laughs> by the grace of God, by the wrath of God. <laughs> the wrath of God. I think it, it captures her in a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> Do yeah. I read somewhere that you're doing a, a series? Is someone, are you doing a something on television with that book? Yes, well, I'm not doing it, but stars have commissioned it. Um, Amazing. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, yeah, congrats. Well, until they start shooting, I won't get too excited, but they've got a screenwriter working on it at the moment. And uh, they want to do two series, one based on Eleanor's life as Queen of France and one as Queen of England. So it's very exciting. Oh, really? Well, Yes, I've got two viewers here. <laughs> but I, yeah, 100%. I love a period drama. Yeah. But this one's gone further than any of them, so I'm cautiously excited. Oh, oh well, that's well-deserved. Yeah, let us know. Thank you. Well, she's, she's a remarkable character. She deserves it. 100%. There well, hasn't been a really good portrayal since uh, Catherine Hepburn in The Lion in Winter, 1968. Um, one that actually has disappeared is is, is The Devil's Crown with Jane Lapater, who gave a wonderful performance as Eleanor in 1978. But since then, nothing. Well, there's always time for a revival, isn't there? I think so. I hope so, anyway.
but I think oh, it might be probably probably next year now because lockdowns put paid to a lot of things of course apparently it's in a queue a production queue <laughs> I can imagine for sure well it looks like there's a lot of rebellious kind of nature with Eleanor we were talking about but who in your opinion you've meant in your book especially you covered other queens who was the most rebellious queen or like was it Eleanor or there others who were even more rebellious it was Eleanor yes but um her daughter-in-law Isabella of Angoulême is, is was the wife of King John and the the, the usually oft quoted scandal about her is that she took lovers and the king had them hanged above her bed but that's oh, from a very oh, unreliable that's a, a very savage. But what everybody overlooks is that um, is that after she had King John died, she took a second husband. In fact, she married her daughter's fiance. Her daughter was only about ten, so I mean, you know, this didn't matter for, so much from the daughter's point of view. She wasn't bothered at that point. Boys were still gross at that point. And, well, absolutely. And she went back to Angoulême, which she, she was she was the countess, the, the sovereign countess, and she ruled there. Uh, but she clashed with. Louis the Louis the Ninth of France, Saint Louis, and uh, and and there, there was a, um, there were war, in, there was intermittent warfare, and she uh, she got at one point she was so angry with the French king for overrunning her lands and confiscating land that she plotted to have him poisoned. Now this again this is regicide this is treason of the worst order, and uh, she because she was almost she almost went to trial but she fled. She tried to kill herself, but her attendants took the knife from her. And she shut herself up in the Abbey of Fontevraud, where Eleanor Rathacombe was buried. And she went into a secret cell there because she was hiding. Uh, she and her husband agreed to separate and devolve all the lands on the children so the French king couldn't seize them. And uh, she, she, she became a nun there and she never emerged. She died about three years later. Wow, going from plotting murder to being a so nun dramatic. quite the 180 in life, isn't it? I know, quite a character. I mean, she was she was married at 12 years, just under 12 years old, and it said that King John, who lost oh, wow. lost the Duchy of Normandy under the quilt to the marriage bed because he was so besotted with her. Jeez. Mm. I know. You couldn't make all these stories up. I know, it's crazy. No, you couldn't. So the other queens didn't lead rebellions at all. I mean, Berengaria of Navarre was very much a, a, you know, a silent voice while she was married to Richard the Lionheart. And he clearly wasn't very um, enamoured of her. And he, when, he, when he was free from captivity, he, she was living in France and he never went to, to collect her or take her home to England to be crowned. And uh, but she, yet nevertheless, she was she was devastated at his death. So in terms of the kind of military side of the Crusades, how... How did these queens fare in battle? We've obviously heard a little bit about Eleanor of Aquitaine and her disastrous period in the Crusades. Is there any other like queen stories that you want to highlight? Oh gosh, I'm thinking about the, about the military side of the Crusades. I mean, queens didn't really get involved in that side, of course. But we both, the only thing I could think of, the first thing that came to mind, was when Eleanor's vassal led that led the vanguard of the army, um, you know, ahead of the main army, mm. and uh, and and they were massacred by the Turks who were lying in wait for them on this plateau. And um, but I said she wasn't with them at the time. She was with Louis in the main army. And uh, I mean, there was comment about that because she, <laughs> she and her ladies uh, comment certainly about the baggage train that she and her ladies took with. But they lost most of it on the way. I mean, they, they suffered. These ladies suffered. They were very tough. These women, they suffered great privations and hardship because the weather was dreadful. Horses died. 
and um, there, there weren't provisions. They were, they were, you know, pe people wouldn't sell them provisions because the French army had been there before them, and they, the, the people had been very unhappy about the way they behaved. So when, when Louis Louis's army came, uh, they didn't want to know. So, I mean, that's as far as Eleanor was involved in it. She mm. went along and she accompanied the army. But, I mean, with Richard the Lionheart, for example, Berengaria went on the Third Crusade with him. He married her on the way in Cyprus and he took her with him. But he established her at Jaffa and then at, and, and then at Acre and Jaffa. And she didn't really, she didn't really see any of the fighting. Mm. But what about even, even if they didn't see any of the fighting, what about planning? Did they, did they often get the their queens involved in any element of um, I'm thinking about Henry who, who took who took the cross and never did actually go on crusade and Eleanor of Provence his queen took um, took it as well but she she really didn't want to go so I don't know that queens were involved in military planning but no. they were they were sometimes involved in efforts to raise funds for, for the crusade as Eleanor okay. was. yeah Rich, what they do? yes she did, but of course, um, her efforts were overtaken by the need to raise the ransom. Hmm. So then, well, how did, well, not just for the ransom, but how did queens tend to raise, how did they raise funds for? Raise levy, levies on the people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, she did it in conjunction with royal councillors. And, and I mean, the, the, when it came to raising the ransom, I mean, abbeys were supposed to melt down their plate, you know, and she, demands were made. People had to pay quite a good percentage of their income. And I bet they weren't often popular for that reason. Well, I think that, I mean, the way this, Eleanor was pretty good at PR and um, okay. not in a way, of course, but. <laughs> I like that, the idea that PR has just been. Well, I know, but I mean, I mean, what we would call it now, but she was good at presenting mm. her face yeah. uh, for her son. She'd already talked him up before he'd even come to England. And people, people responded. I'm not saying there weren't grumbles, there were. But she was in charge of the, all the chests in which the ransom money was collected. They were in St Paul's Cathedral, and she and and she 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 achieved this incredible feat of raising all this money. And then she travelled to to Germany with it, uh, to to you know to, to to hand it over and collect Richard. So she wanted to be there for every single step of that. She had to she go. Did, absolutely, until, yeah. yeah. Um, Eleanor of Castile accompanied her, her husband, Edward I, the future Edward I, on, on crusade in the 12, seven, early 1270s. Mm. Um, but she didn't get involved in any of the fighting, apart from the fact that on one occasion he was in his tent and an assassin came in. We're not sure um, what, 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 what nationality he was, but he was Middle Eastern. And um, he came in and he tried to kill the king, tried to stab him. And during the, during the, the, the fracas, Edward was injured. He was stabbed in the arm, I think. And, uh, it was, and he became ill. Now, either the wound was, uh, was, was either the, the, you know, the wound became infected, but what, what was thought at the time was that it was poisoned. And there's this lovely tale that Eleanor, she, she, they, they loved each other very dearly, and that Eleanor actually sucked out the poison. Now, historians nowadays tend to dismiss this because there's another account of her being carried out screaming when they were about to cut, cut away the, the flesh. Right. Um, and and the, the physician said, it's better that you weep, lady, than the whole of England. But there is, I mean, this story about sucking the, the poison isn't that old. It's, mm. it's written down not long afterwards. And so it's possible there's a grain of truth in it that, that this was tried before they had to cut away the, the infected flesh. Yeah. Wow, it shows what um, a dedicated, 
dedicated um, wife. But she was, I mean, she followed him everywhere, Ellen of Castile. I mean, they, they were always together. And she went, when she, she was, she was, she left young children in England. Um, and I mean, she, her husband was her priority. And when pe people tried to dissuade her from going, she said the way to heaven is as near from Palestine as it is from England. Oh, wow. Because queens, queens didn't get involved in the military side. So I'm sorry, there isn't too much of that. No, it's all right. It's just interesting no, to hear the kind of role they play. Yeah, even just their, their presence around the army, Absolutely. like you said, yeah. with the Absolutely. king, must have had an impact in more mm. than many ways. Yes, it would. And also, it'd be also posed a security risk as well. You know, kings had to make sure their queens were safe before they went off fighting. Oh, yeah. That's just kind of like, the. I guess that's the prime target for kidnapping, isn't it? If we can get well, the queen. in distress. That is, yeah. I mean, not yeah. that Eleanor of Aquitaine had been kidnapped. By, by barons in, in, in southern France because they wanted hold of her ransom. And, um, you know, she was defended uh, by, by William the Marshal, who's, who got one of, one of England's greatest knights. And uh, so, you know, they could happen. Wow, that is interesting. So of all of the queens that you look at in your book, who would you say is your favorite? Can you pick one? And if so, why? It has to be Eleanor. Yeah. And that's unfair to the others, but uh, she's the towering character there. We, I mean, the evidence we have about her life um, uh, corroborates that. Uh, she, her voice comes across the centuries. And although we don't have many letters, of course, but what we have is quite revealing. And her, in her act, in her deeds, we know her. Hmm. So she, she, was, she was quite one of the towering female figures of the 12th century. Um, looking, I mean, you wouldn't, I wouldn't rate Isabella of France very highly, but as a queen, she's pretty much a non-entity. It's only in her later life that, you know, her real character sort of comes across. Berengaria is very interesting. Richard I queen, because as I said, while Richard was king, she's, she has no voice. She, she too is a non-entity and, pro and probably doesn't set, doesn't set foot in England at all. After his death, she becomes Lady of Le Mans in France. And she, we see a feisty side to her. She's always quarrelling with the cathedral clergy and flouncing <laughs> up and communicate people. I mean, it's, 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 it's fascinating. And then she, she becomes friendly with the King of France and she founds this wonderful abbey at Le Pas near Le Mans. And she, she was buried there. You can see her tomb today. Oh, wow. So Berengaria, I mean, yes, you can admire her feistiness, but you think, well, it makes me think, for God's sake, why didn't she use this with Richard? Because he really treated her badly. And then Henry yep. of Provence has got a terrible, Henry III's queen has got a very bad reputation because she exercised, exerted undue influence over him, which was detrimental to the fortunes of the crown. In fact, it was one of the reasons for the Barons' War led by Simon de Montfort. And uh, Montfort was killed, but, um, and Henry's power was curbed because by then he was feeble and his son, the future Edward I, took over. But, and, and Eleanor's power, fortunately, was curbed because her extravagance and her promotion of foreign re relations and connections was deeply unpopular and destabilised the throne. So there's not much to admire there, apart from the fact she was a devoted wife and mother. And Eleanor of Castile, who has this reputation of being the perfect medieval queen, which rests on the legend of her sucking the poison, and also on those 13 beautiful crosses that were erected to her memory um, by Edward. Um, um, Charing Cross is the most obvious example, but that's a Victorian replacement. Only about three of the original ones survived. Um, it leads us to believe that this is a dear queen, gentle, bountiful, merciful. My God, she was grasping. And uh, she had a terrible reputation. She was quite formidable. People, in, you, know, in, you know, men high in government were frightened to challenge her. 
Oh, wow. So and Edward let her get away with it. I mean, there are awful uh, stories of what her officials uh, got up with. They were they extorted money from people. They created situations where they could claim money. One family was imprisoned, and the child was left lying in its cradle in the middle of the street. Bit so, of a Cersei Lannister, I'm feeling. Those yeah, bit of a Cersei Lannister. Have you seen Game of Thrones? Yeah. <laughs> so it's um it's not it's you know um, that's why I like Eleanor of Aquitaine because I think of them all she's by far the best of the bunch yeah I think I, think you, I agree yeah yeah. I, yeah I would agree with that so and you can find out about all of these uh queens in your book Queens of the Crusade can't you yes, where can absolutely. you get hold of this book are there any places that you know of? oh well you can get it on Amazon on Amazon, Amazon. yeah you know, bookshops online and that you know should Fantastic. be incredible we will attach the links to that when we put this on twitter so now we've talked about your book we want to talk about you oh, <laughs> don't be don't be scared it's fine so what got you into history when i was 14 i'd graduated from books to comics so my mother marched me into a library and said get a book <laughs> wandering around this it's an adult library i hadn't been in an adult library and the last one was when i was about 12 and went in the local children's library and um, I wandered around and I saw this rather lurid jacket on a book called Henry's Golden Queen. It was about Catherine of Aragon, Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. Yeah. And I took it home and I devoured it, sitting in an armchair for two days. And I was oh. absolutely hooked. And I was hooked because I was only 14. And I'm, and I'm thinking, this is quite sexy. I've never read a book like that. Did they really get <laughs> Amazing. It's all a bit scandalous, isn't it? The Tudors and like the affairs and ooh. I read it now. I managed to get a copy on eBay and it, well, it's unreadable actually. But um, it's but it's so tame. And but I went, <laughs> right, when I got back to school, I rushed off to the school. We had an excellent school library. I went to the City of London School and I tried to find out did they go on like that? And the answer was yes, they did. And I've started searching for the truth and that kicked it off. I've been searching for it ever since. So that's how I got into history. A passion was born overnight. My mother wondered what had happened. <laughs> that's incredible. No, I love that. That it really just, is. It, it is that kind of that, that curiosity just gets you when, you when you pick up a good book and there's just something about the, the, the people in it that you find or that you know about that you just with the story Henry Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn and, and you know I, I really wanted to know if what what, what she'd written was the truth mm. and that's why I'm careful nowadays to make sure that when I write historical novels uh, there's an author's note explaining what's true and what I've invented and why I've invented it hey brilliant amazing my daughter says to me mum you spent the 60s in a library and I said well no not not quite <laughs> <laughs> But well, look what you've created. It's fantastic. So I think if you look back at that book at when you're 14 to where you are now, how yeah. did you get from oh, a young, enthusiastic 14 year old to this brilliant author with thousands of books. <laughs> books published? I wrote loads and loads of things, all different projects, history, plays, novels, poems, all sorts of things. And you can, there are some examples of my early work on my website, just for a laugh, actually, because that's all they, all they, all they merit. But um, I started writing seriously in the early 70s. Uh, I wrote a biography of the six wives of Henry VIII, which was very, very long, 1,024 pages, not even double space. Oh and when I launched it, as I thought on the publishing, well, it was just rejected by one agent after another. So I went away and did a lot of research on medieval queens. And funnily enough, that's what I'm writing up now. Obviously, updating. <laughs> I beavered away for years and kept sending in projects, not, not that often, but I sent them in and they were rejected and I almost gave up. 
And I, I thought, no, I've had my chance and it's not going to happen. And then I had one last throw. I'd compiled this um, genealogical dictionary of British royalty and I pulled it round into a chronological form and sent it to an agent who had been interested in seeing any more work I'd done. And that's the first, that's the book they sold. That was my first published book, Britain's Royal Family. It came out in 1988. So I had a late start in the career and I haven't stopped since. I think that's remarkable. Thank you. And I, I, was, I found it very interesting. It was your last kind of attempt and you thought, well, what, what was there to lose really? And then yeah. that's the one that really sparked where you are now. I never thought, you see, this would be of interest to anyone else, which is actually what one publisher said, if there were $5,000, we'd publish this. But it was the seventh publisher who, who actually offered, made a really good offer for it. And, uh, but I mean, I, I, I thought this was just my bank of information as a basis for other projects I was doing. And um, when I, I was, you could have knocked me down with a feather when they accepted it. Amazing. Well, we're, we're, we're grateful that they did. And Thank you. Got to, got to publish all this since. So in the field, so you've stayed kind of within the field of like Queens and Tudor history and done all, all the medieval period and everything within that. Are there any myths in your field that you would like take the opportunity to, to debunk if you were given yes. it? Yes, I've, I mean, I've, I'm fascinated by, I mean, th there's a huge amount of interest about whether Elizabeth I was the Virgin Queen, or did she, yes. or did she? Yeah, that's and a good I, one. I wrote a whole book to that, looking yeah. at the evidence, because I think the, there is, the answer is there somewhere. In fact, I've seen it, and I can't remember where. Ooh, <laughs> <terrible>? teaser. <laughs> so I, I, know, I know it's in one of the books I have here, and I, 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 I remember reading it thinking, my God, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> So that, that might be something I might propose, but at the moment, I mean, I'm, I'm just about to finish book three in the Medieval Queen series, and I've got one more book, book four, to write. And then after that, I'll, be, I'll start thinking about what the next non-fiction is. So yes, I'd love oh, to explore wow. that question of Elizabeth I's virginity and then her, 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 the psychological approach, you, you know, I'd, I'd love to do that. Yeah, oh, that's I'll be really here good that. Oh, thank you. Fantastic. Well, I remember Sarah Griswood, a good friend of mine and a historian, she published a book on Elizabeth and Leston. She said everybody asked her, did they or didn't they? Even the man who came to mend the, to mend the gas boiler. <laughs> I think the interest is there. I've touched on it, obviously, in previous books, but... Yeah. Uh, it, it's like I did I wrote a book called The Lady in the Tower The Fall of Anne Boleyn and it was great to have that scope to explore a, 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 sub, a subject that covers a very short period of time but there's a, there's a lot of information about it so I'd like to do some sort of forensic examination like I did with that one. Oh, fantastic that'd be really cool yeah that's brilliant I'm glad that you had that reaction because my agent said to me I've floated it with him and he said it wouldn't be a very long book. I said, well, you should know me better. It probably <laughs> Or short but sweet could be good in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. I try and keep things succinct. But I always end up struggling with a word limit. Every time. Every yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> I never forget so, when I, I delivered a book, uh, my novel on Anne Boleyn, and it had gone literally to the press here. And in America, my agent rang me up and said, this is a five glasses of wine conversation. And he said, <laughs> I want you to cut a hundred pages. Oh my and God. I went ballistic, I have to say. And in the end, I oh just said no, because I don't want to deliver a, a shorter book over there. I, I want to deliver the same book because readers yeah. won't. Yeah. And they went with it. Oh, good on you for holding your own. Yeah, stand your ground. Love it. 
I understand why they did it. They were worried about putting the price point up and it might have an impact on sales. But I think, you know, if, if it had gone so far here, there's nothing I could do. The time to have done it was when I was editing it. Yeah, mm, for sure. Definitely. Yeah, it's two layers on it. So yeah. what would you say has been one of the best moments of your career so far then? Oh, well, I think the best, the accolade for me was just, was just wonderful, was, was launching book a book. And then, of course, I've done several events there since in the Great Hall at Hampton Court Palace. Oh. If you told me as a teenager, I would do that. Um, I would not be done with a feather. I would never have believed it. And I'm, I still think that was just incredible to be able to speak there in that wonderful space. Oh, my God. There now, and I've done a lot of events. There. Yeah. 30 events for Start Royal Palaces. But that, that that was just nothing could beat that moment. I thought, what do I do now? <laughs> no, that's insane. Hampton Court, I think, is one of my favourite places in the country. So, oh, I it's so it. I love it so much. Yeah, I can't even imagine speaking there. Just like, oh wow, <laughs> just absorbing the, <laughs> where you are and talking. It must have been incredible. And they organise the event so well because afterwards, they in in, in the um, in the uh, cartoon gallery, they, they serve drinks and canapes and you do the signing there. Not that I get many drinks and canapes doing that, but <laughs> <laughs> it's like an after party. It's really great. Oh my God, that's Aww. a wonderful moment. Hi, Hampton Court. They wanted me to do one last year, but lockdown intervened. Oh gosh, don't. I'm so ready for the world to open back up again. Oh gosh, so We need to do more talks at Hampton Court Palace and yes, canapes we'll be there. and pub trips. And I know. <laughs> And I run historical tours. We've had to keep postponing and postponing, but we're hoping to run oh. one in, in October and another one next May. Oh, fantastic. That'd be really good. So we are about to finish up then, but we've got a final set of quick questions we're going to okay. ask. My favourite round, so, the quick fire round. <laughs> yeah. So your media answer, and then we'll jump straight on to the next question. Are you ready? So who's your favourite historical figure in all of history? Elizabeth I. Guess why? Because she's a great survivor. She inherits a bankrupt kingdom. She's a bastard and a heretic and a usurper in the eyes of most of Europe. And she's still there 45 years later. I think that's an incredible testimony to her strength of character. And she's a remarkable character. She's a gift to any writer because there's so many facets to her. And we have a great written record. We have a lot of her own writings. Uh, So I think she's one of the most dynamic characters in English history. Yeah, for sure. that's possibly the best description of Elizabeth I I think I've oh, ever gosh. heard. I've been doing that for a lot, a lot, a long time. Oh, I know, but you know, it just feels like yes, that makes so much sense. Of yeah. course, what a fantastic way to look at her. Thank you. I really like that. Okay, so flip this on its head. Who's your least favourite figure in all of history? Oh gosh, that's a nasty one. <laughs> Edward the Second, probably, who was an appalling king, and. Um, um, I mean, I don't have, he, he, he promoted favourites. This is nothing to do with the kind of relationship he had with those favourites, but he, he, they, they, he promoted them at the expense of his queen and the, and the aristocracy. He, could, he was a tyrant. And his wife, Rose, Isabella of France, rose and uh, deposed him. The problem is she got the bad press. But I think oh, the second probably is, of course, to be one of England's worst monarchs. So no, I don't hold much candle for him. Oh, fair fair enough. enough, completely justified. Um, so if you were going to go on a road trip and uh, you could go anywhere and have any people, um, three people from history, who would you want in your car with you? Wow. Oh, God. I'm just thinking not too, not too far in, back in time because I might smell a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, think 
I think they're I'm in their prime form. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's a magic van. Wait for this. This is going to be absolutely explosive because I think I would like oh, to see Henry VIII, okay, Anne Boleyn, and Richard III. And I'd like to do. A- <laughs> oh my god! Brilliant. Do you want to survive this car journey? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see a lot of tension between York and Lancaster. I can't I- even imagine. Imagine the conversations. It would be like you and Richard in the front, whilst like It'll Henry and Vicar in the back. Yeah. <laughs> No, I'd love to do that. Oh, incredible. And it would be oh, historic yeah. sites in England that have connection to them, like Heber Castle and Hampton Court and then Fotheringay Castle, what's left, one stone that's left of it. And, um, you know, places connected with, with, with all three of them. You'd have some have great places to stay overnight if you needed to uh, crash I out. I'd have to duck out after about two days. <laughs> <laughs> I can yeah, imagine it could be worthwhile. <laughs> Okay, well, so final question then. If you could go back in time for a day, where and when would you go? Oh, right. I would like to be in the Tower of London on the 5th of, on the night of the 5th of September, uh, 1483. And I would like to be a fly on the wall to see what happened to the princes in the tower on that night. Yes. Yes, that's a good one. I always forget about that, but that is definitely one of the biggest mysteries of, of history. That it is absolutely. So it's one of the biggest mysteries that I would love to know. Yeah, wouldn't we all? We can't a hundred percent say what actually happened. We we can say the evidence very strongly suggests what happened, mm. but we don't know for certain, and I'd love to know that. And that's the beauty of history, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's a good note to finish this on as well. Uh, this has been so much fun talking to you thank you so much for joining us you are as we said you're so well accomplished you've written so many books you've published so much and you've done so much in your career obviously so thank you so much for talking to us yeah absolutely is good luck with the podcasts thank you so much that means a lot bye and that was the wonderful Alison Weir talking to us about the fabulous queens of the crusades Next week, we have Dr. Waitman Bourne talking to us about the importance of the Holocaust. And even some of the stuff that I came across just in the, in the background of doing my research, you know, one of the, one of the court cases that, that formed part of, uh, of my project came about because essentially this one guy got separated from his wife and they were having a dispute over essentially child support. And he called the mayor to complain and have, him, have the mayor come over and, and see how bad his wife was. And she screamed out the window that he was a Jew murdering bastard. And and then he went and he then went to the police and said, you know, I want to accuse my wife or ex-wife or whatever of libel. And so the police investigated, and it turned out actually he was involved in like a mass shooting in Eastern Europe. And all of a sudden then it spirals into I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, like this woman was literally yelling out of her window. Now, in the meantime, don't forget to like, share, retweet. Find us all on social media at Kaki Malarkey. I've been Olivia Smith, joined by my lovely colleague Phoebe Style, and this is Kaki Malarkey signing off.